Some of the greatest stories of faith come from God's chosen people in the Old Testament. What can we learn from these men and women who were earnestly seeking God? Walk with us as we capture snapshots of faith from the great cloud of witnesses and the lessons we can learn from them today. Casey Diaz was the leader of a gang in South Central Los Angeles. And this gang was wreaking havoc in that area. In fact, Casey himself had robbed a number of, uh, of gas stations. There were a number of home burglaries, home break-ins, and he had stabbed a number of um, members, gang members from other groups. Finally, Los Angeles Police Department caught up with him, were able to charge him, and he was sent to 13 years, sentenced to 13 years in Folsom Prison. And he tells the story of something that happened to him. He was in solitary confinement for most of his time. And he writes about something that transformed his life. Listen to what happened. He said, about a year at New Folsom Prison, I was lying on my bed. I heard an older woman say, is there someone in that cell? The guard said, yes, ma'am, but you're wasting your time with him. She answered, well, Jesus came for him as well. She approached the cell, and she called out, how are you doing? I couldn't be better, was my sarcastic reply. She said, young man, I'm going to pray for you, but there's something else I want to tell you. Jesus is going to use you. This began a transformation in the heart of Casey. He ended up giving his life to Jesus. And in, when he was released, he was a completely different man. He has today his own business. He leads Bible studies. He speaks around the nation about his story of conversion, of transformation by faith in Jesus Christ. But as I read the story, you might be wondering what I'm wondering. With a man like that, with all that he had done, why would God bother? Why would God care? Why would God reach out to him, stir in his heart, and give him the ability to believe? My only answer is the same reason he did it for you and me. This morning, we're continuing our series called Snapshots. And we're looking at the story of different people in the Old Testament, taking just a snapshot of their life. And we're doing that this story this morning with the story of Ruth. And it's an extraordinary, extraordinary story. But the question that I always ask about the book of Ruth is, why is it here? I mean, this person isn't really significant. Naomi isn't really significant. There's really nobody in the story that's significant. And yet we've got this story in the Bible of a woman named Ruth. Well, this morning, what we're going to see is that there are some remarkable things that we can learn from her life and her example, and from this incredible small book that has so much to teach us. Now, as I say that, let me give you the context. 
as Julie just read, this happened during the time of the Judges. Now, we've been talking about a couple of the different people from the book of Judges, and if you weren't here with us or you didn't remember, just a quick reminder, there was this, this thing that kept this wheel that kept turning over and over again. It would begin with God were, uh, the people were walking with God. Then the people would rebel against God. And then we keep going and we see that God raises up a foreign power to come and to get the attention of the people. Sometimes we need that. That's an act of love, friends. God's discipline in our lives is an act of love. Because if God left them on their own, they would just go further and further and further away from him. It strikes me how we see the need for our children to be disciplined, for each other to be disciplined, but we just don't see the need for it in our own lives, right? And so as we read through this, we see this pattern just repeat and repeat. The nation turns back to God, and then it starts all over again. Well, it was in one of these periods where God had raised up a foreign nation, a foreign power, to bring discipline on the Jews. This is the time in which um, Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, that's when they left Judah. They left Israel, and they went to Moab. And they lived for a number of years in Moab. In fact, their two sons married Moabite women. So to even read that says they weren't particularly religious people. Now, it seems that Naomi still worshiped God, but they weren't really real serious about their faith because they weren't supposed to marry people who were not Jews, who were not worshiping the true God. And so with that little foundation, there are four things I want you to see this morning that I think are really significant and things that we need to pay attention to in our own lives. And here's the first one. God cares and is passionate about everyone. God cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about Casey Diaz, the, the, um, the man who was leading a, a group of people who were wreaking havoc in a gang in south, southwest Los Angeles. He cares about you. He cares about me. And here's the reality. He knows more about you than anyone else does. He knows more about you than you know about yourself, and yet God still is passionate about you. And we see that in this incredible story. <coughs> we begin verses one and two, uh, uh, 3 and 5. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years in Moab. And both Milan and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. So what we see here is that they go to Moab, and they're living in a foreign nation. Now, what strikes me is there is nothing significant historically about any of these people. Naomi, insignificant, a rather uh, impoverished person. Elimelech, impoverished. They didn't have money. They were poor. They weren't significant in their culture. They weren't leaders of anything. And they were just average people living in the world at that time. And yet God will use them to change the world. 
He will teach us powerful lessons from their lives. And what it says to me is that there are no average people that God can't use to change the world. You might feel this morning that you are insignificant. You might wonder this morning, does anybody even know my name? You might be here this morning, and you might be thinking, I'm not sure I want to continue to live. Friends, God knows your circumstances. God knows your situation. He does not see you as insignificant. He does not see you as average. He sees you as somebody that he can use to change the world. We need to remember that together because it matters. You see, I understand I'm learning more and more every day about who God is. And when I learn more about who God is, I learn more about who I am. And when I learn more about who I am, I understand more about what God can do in this average human life and how he can make a difference through this average, insignificant person. The same is true for you. That's true for all of us. Now, as I was thinking about that this week, what struck me is that Ruth is not even Jewish. She's a Moabite, and she becomes the star of the book. Now, that's strange, isn't it? that a non-Jew would become the star of a book in the Old Testament? Why is that? What is God saying to us? Ruth was, had a part in God's plan. Ruth, from the line of Ruth and Boaz, who she'll, she'll marry at the end of the book, from their line, Boaz a Jew, Ruth a Moabite, from their line, from their line will come King David. David the leader, the great leader, one of the most significant people who lived in the Old Testament. David would come from the line of a Moabite named Ruth, an insignificant person from the world's perspective, but part of the plan of God. We read on and you see that from her line would come the Messiah of the world. Jesus would come from the line of a Moabite named Ruth, and her union with a Jew named Boaz. You see, that was part of God's plan. God's plan was to have as part of the line in the genealogy of the Savior of the world a couple of women who were not Jewish. What is he saying to us? He's telling us that he cares for all people, not just the Jews, he cares for the world. And the problem is, is that the Jews saw God as just their God. And they didn't see him as loving their neighbors. They didn't care what happened to their neighbors. They didn't care whether their neighbors believed in the name of the one true God. All they cared about was that they were part of God's kingdom. Now, friends, I want to suggest to you two things that are true coming out of this. The first is this. You are not insignificant. You might feel like you don't have that many years left in your life. 
and your health isn't good, what difference can I make? God has given you breath. God has given you life because there are things he wants to do in you and through you. Do not give up. There are some of you here today who say, I am insignificant. I have nothing to offer. That is not true. When we give our lives to Christ fully and we follow him fully, what he does is to use us in ways that we may never see, but we will see one day when we go to be with him. When you live for Jesus, the world will be forever different. I remember um, the second point I want you to see is, and this is really significant, and that is that the Jews forgot that their purpose was to be a witness to the one true God in the world. They forgot that. They forgot that that was their purpose. God was our God, not your God. And you know what? That happens to us in the church today. That happens to us as Christians. We we're chosen by God to be his forever child. And then we just go on our way and we have no relationships with people who don't know Christ. And we don't reach out to people who don't know Christ. And we just go on our way through life. I remember when I was a pastor in West Michigan that there were a group of churches that started their own softball league little league and soccer league for children of Christian families. It made absolutely no sense to me. And so we, our kids were never part of those leagues. Our kids were part of the leagues in the community. And I remember the first time another pastor and I, we had sons the same age, we coached a, a soccer team together. And the person in charge of the league gave us all Christian children. We said, don't do that. We want kids who don't know Jesus. We want families who don't know Jesus. We want to share Jesus with them in the context, the natural context of coaching them and building friendship with them. I want to ask you, have you secluded yourself in such a way that you really have very few relationships with people who are not Christians? That is not how we are to live. We are to be a witness in our workplace. We are to be a witness in our school. We are to be a witness in our neighborhood. We are to be a witness in our extended family. We are to be a witness when we go to the grocery store. We are to be a witness every place God calls us to be. We are not to isolate ourselves from the world. We are to engage the world with the light of Christ and the love of Christ. Everything we do is just about everything we do as a church. It's not just for us. It's never just for us. It's for the community and the world. This next Saturday, we have this incredible event called the Fall Festival. We had well over 1,000 people here last year on our campus. And you know what we're going to do? We've got cards out there. We would love for you to pick up a card and hand that card and invite somebody who is unchurched or is not going to church and for whatever reason, who's maybe not a believer, invite them to come and to be at this very safe event where they can see, well, maybe Christians just aren't as weird as I thought they were. <laughs> Friends, we were saved for the purpose of being 
a witness to the world. Let's not forget that call. We see it in this great book. The second thing I want you to see is that the Lord provides for the hungry and through you and through me. Not too long ago, I was talking with somebody who was sharing with me, it was somebody who had a lot of knowledge of ministry, in the Christian ministry in the country of India. And she was sharing with me that India is largely a Hindu nation and that the prime minister is a very committed Hindu. And she said that the government does not want Christian organizations like World Vision or others to come in and help the poor or the sick. They don't want any organizations coming and helping them. Now that amazed me. I thought, why would that be the case? And she explained to me it's because part of the Hindu faith is what they believe about what's called karma. Now karma is the belief that you receive in kind for how you have lived in this state and previous states. They believe in previous states. So you lived a number of times. So if things go well for you, it's karma. It's because you have lived well in your life in previous states and in your life now. If things, if you're suffering, it's karma. It's because you're being punished for the way that you've lived in this state and in previous states. It struck me how different the Bible is when it teaches the heart of God for the poor. This is amazing. God cares about the hungry in the world. God cares about the widow in the world. God cares about the orphan in the world. God cares about people who are sick in the world and his people and his church are to care as well. I want you to see the heart of God in this. So what happens is Ruth goes with Naomi back to Judah and they don't have, they're impoverished. And so Ruth goes to harvest some of the food that's on the outskirts of a piece of property that is growing food. So listen to what happens. We read this. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. Now, what's happening here? God instructed the people. Look at this in the book of Leviticus. This is the heart of God. And this should be our heart too as Christians. Listen to what we read. When you reap the harvest of your land, when you pick the crops of your land, you shall not reap your field all the way to the edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. So you're harvesting, things fall to the ground. You're not supposed to pick them up. You're supposed to leave them. And we read on and it says this, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. You're not to pull all the grapes off. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, the person, the alien traveling through their land. I am the Lord your God. 
What a powerful statement. God has a heart for the poor. God has a heart for the hurting. And he made allowance in his laws to the people. Don't gather all your food. Don't pick all your food all the way to the edges. Leave some so that those who are poor can pull and get food in order to eat. He does this. He does this. Ruth goes and she is picking, gleaning from the land of Boaz. Now, interestingly, back then there were some people, as there are today, who were very greedy and stingy of heart. And they refused to allow anybody to pick on their land. But we see the heart of Boaz here, a heart after the heart of God. And he followed the command of God And Ruth and others were picking, those who were hungry, were picking food from the land. Friends, as I thought about this, you may not know this about our church, but more than 20% of everything that's given to this church goes outside the walls of this church. Over 20% of everything we bring in goes outside the walls of this church. So where, where's, where's that going? It might help with the financing of digging wells so that people have access to clean drinking water in parts of the world where they don't have access to clean drinking water. Collecting, right now, we're, we're collecting food for Food for Life, a food bank in our own community here because we have many hungry people right here in our own community. We have... We have a ministry that is building homes for widows in Kenya. And not just building homes, but um, they're they're putting in chicken coops and and digging for uh, clean water. All of this happening out of the context of this church. Building homes for the poor, for poor people in Mexico. Supporting children through World Vision in Baba, Ecuador. You see, friends, we do these things because this is the heart of God. It's the heart of God that we would love as God loves. It's the heart of God that we would serve as God has called us to serve. We continue on, and this is something that just I've never paid attention to in the book of Ruth. It's a very famous passage, which you'll see in a, in a moment, and it's, it's a, an incredible picture. Okay, so here's what's happening. Boaz is a wealthy relative of Naomi. He's not the closest relative, but he is a very wealthy, wealthy man. And he owns land. So Ruth goes to his land to pick food for she and Naomi. And, And then we see that before Boaz has even met Ruth. He's heard about her. He's heard about her character. I want you to hear this. But Boaz answered Ruth. So Ruth and Boaz are now talking. Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So Boaz has heard about all the things that that Ruth has done for Naomi. And how you left your father and mother and your native land 
and came to a people that you did not know. Think about how staggering that is. Think about how courageous that is. Think about somebody who would be willing to do that out of love for Naomi, out of love for her mother-in-law. And then he says this, now may the Lord repay you for what you have done. This is a verbal blessing. Now, may the Lord, may the Lord, may the Lord bless you and repay you for all that you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Don't you love that phrase? The picture here is of a bird with eggs and laying its wings out to keep the eggs and, and, the, and the babies once they're hatched, keeping them protected, keeping them warm. He said, this is what God has done for you, Ruth. God has taken his wings and his wings are over you. The wings of the Lord are over you. And then he says, and then he says this, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So what's the relevance of this? What's the relevance of this? I think this is an amazing statement. First thing I want you to see is this. Even before Boaz met Ruth, he had heard of her reputation. I want to ask you this question this morning. What is your reputation? What would your neighbors say about you? What would your family say about you? What would, what would your workplace say about you or, or people that you know in school, what would they say about you? What is your reputation? Why does it matter? It matters. Because when we hold ourselves out as ambassadors for Jesus, our reputation becomes our witness to who God is. And if our reputation is not honorable, if our reputation is not one that lifts up the name of Jesus, then we need to do some soul searching and we need to make changes in our lives. I did some thinking about that this week. Sometimes when I just, oh, I just don't feel like serving. Sometimes I just don't feel like getting involved. And I, I was challenged. The Lord challenged me. And the second thing I want you to see from this is that your, your words, they matter. What did, what did Ruth say to Boaz after he spoke to her? You have comforted me with your words. The book of Proverbs says that our words have the power to build up and to tear down. Our words have the power to transform for good or the power to promote evil. Our words are powerful. When was the last time you saw somebody who had done something kind, something good, 
and you just honored them and blessed them. Let them know that you saw that and that it makes a difference. Some of us are so quick to critique and not quick to see the wonderful things that God is doing in our world and in our community and in our church and in our neighborhood. And I love what Boaz does. He literally places a blessing, which you can do as well, upon another person, in this case, Ruth. May the Lord, what? May the Lord bless you. May the, word, the Lord comfort you. May the word, Lord strengthen you. May the Lord reward you. It becomes a prayer that we are praying in that other person's presence. When was the last time you did something like that? It's powerful. It can make a huge difference in the lives of the people that God has placed along our path. And here's the last thing I want you to see. Why the book of Ruth? Well, another reason, and I think the main reason, is that it points us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. It helps us to understand who the, what the Messiah would do. Now, I want you to follow me on this because it's really, really powerful. I want you to see this this morning and be encouraged. Why does it matter? Because God had a plan even before he created Adam and Eve. And God's plan cannot be thwarted. God's plan cannot be derailed. God will fulfill his purpose. God will fulfill his design. God will carry out his plan. It's true for my life. It's true for your life. It's true for all of humanity. Listen to what we read. <clears throat> Here's what's happening. There's something called, and I'll give you de a definition of this in a moment, but a redeemer. A redeemer is somebody who helps somebody else who's in trouble. Buy them out of something. Maybe out of jail. Maybe out of, of, out of slavery. Maybe out of debt. But they buy them out of something. Now, with a lot of different Old Testament passages, they created something called the kindred redeemer. Now, let me, don't, don't let me lose you because it's actually very simple. What happens is, the relative who is closest to Naomi has the opportunity to purchase the land that Naomi and Elimelech owned, or at least a parcel of it. Remember, Naomi is, is she's in poverty. And they're, they're surviving by eating what's on the outside of other people's vineyards or, or the food that they're growing. And so what happens is, Boaz who is not the closest relative, he goes to the closest relative of Naomi and he says to her, he says to this person, hey, you are the closest relative, will you buy her land? Now it could have been that the land really wasn't worth much, it could have been the land just, they, uh, Naomi didn't have money to, uh, to work the land, we don't really know, but she can get out of poverty by selling the land to her closest relative. And then Boaz says, but if you do, you need to take Ruth as your wife because there are no, Naomi has no children and the line will, Elimelech has no children left and no grandchildren, so the line will stop. And so marry Ruth, have children, and you'll honor Elimelech. Now let me 
let me read this to you. Then Boaz said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you redeem it, you redeem it by buying it, right? You redeem it, you pay for it, you redeem it. He says this, if you redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I then come after you. I'm, in, I'm next in line. And the man said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. What? He's not so excited about that. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name, Elimelech, of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself. I'm out, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And Boaz does. Boaz buys the land so that Naomi is no longer in poverty. She's no longer poor. And he takes Ruth to be his wife. And they have a child to carry on the name of Elimelech. And that child becomes the line of David and in the line of Jesus the Messiah. Now, where do I see Jesus in all of this? What is a redeemer? A redeemer is one who delivers someone from bondage based on the payment of a price. A price has to be paid to redeem them from bondage. What is a kinsman redeemer? A kinsman redeemer is a close male relative who according to various laws of the, of the Old Testament had the privilege and the responsibility to redeem or buy back on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, danger, or in need. It comes from Leviticus 26. So that's what Boaz does. Okay, now, here's what I want you, here's what I want you to see. Jesus fulfills the role of the kinsman redeemer for you and for me. See, this all points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What was our bondage? Our bondage was sin and death. Our bondage was we were in bondage to sin, and death was going to be our reality. And so Jesus becomes our kinsman redeemer. Let me show you. In order to be a kinsman redeemer, you had to fulfill these three things. Number one, you had to be a blood relative. You had to be a blood relative in order to die for someone, or redeem them, I should say. But when the time, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, just like we are, to redeem those, to buy those under the law, that we might become children of God, that we might be adopted to sonship. So we are a blood relative in our humanity. Listen to what it says here in Hebrews. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, that's you and me. For this reason, he had to be made like them, 
fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement, redemption for the sins of the people. Jesus bought us and he could because he was fully human like we are. He must have the necessary resources. Listen to what it says. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without defect. Amen? Jesus had the necessary resources. It wasn't gold, it wasn't silver, it wasn't money. It was his precious blood that was shed on a cross on a hilltop called Calvary. And Jesus, Jesus redeemed us. He's our kinsman redeemer. He redeemed us. He purchased us by his blood. And then we read this, that he must be willing to pay the price. I always love this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Jesus was willing to pay the price. Jesus was not a victim of the cross. Jesus chose the cross. He chose the cross to redeem you and to redeem me. He bought you at the price of his life. He bought you at the price of his body and his blood. Friends, he is our great kindred redeemer. And so God, hundreds and hundreds of years before, before Jesus would, would be born, he laid out this picture of what God was going to do for us in Jesus Christ. Let me close with this story. It's a story that I've told many children over the years. So we have children here, you'll love the story. The story is told of a man and his son. And the, the man and his son had a wonderful relationship. And they would do lots of things together. And, and one day they went into the workroom and they they built this beautiful wooden sailboat. They carved it out. They put a little sail on it, a little mast, a little sail, and they, and they sanded it all down. They painted it. It was a labor of love between father and son. When it was done, this father was excited, and he took the boat out, and he ran out to the river that was close by, and he put it down, and it, it floated, and it started to move, and then the wind caught the sail. And it started to move quickly down the river. The boy ran as fast as he could to catch up with, this, with his boat, but it just kept getting further and further away until he couldn't see it any longer. He was heartbroken, absolutely heartbroken. A few weeks later, he was in the neighboring town, and there in the toy store, in the window, he saw his boat. It was his boat. And he went in and he said to the clerk, that's my boat. And the man said, it's not your boat, it's our boat. He said, I made that boat. And the man said, well, somebody brought it in and I bought it from them. It's my boat. I own it. If you want it, you have to buy it. So the boy went back home, crestfallen. And, but his dad said, no, here, let me give you chores. and You can earn the money. And then the boy went back and he redeemed that boat. And he gave the money to the clerk. And he took the boat and he held it. And he said to the boat, you're twice mine. I made you 
and I redeemed you. Jesus looks at you, and he looks at me, and he said, you're mine twice. I made you, and I redeemed you. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the power of your word. Lord, we look at a book, and sometimes like Ruth, and we just say, well, what's this about? What's in here? I, I don't see it. And yet, God, as we open our eyes and we open our heart, you show us many, many things. Oh, God, I pray that we would not leave what we've learned from Ruth in this place today, but we would take one thing that will challenge us, and we will be changed and transformed by it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <laughs>